Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication toward God. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we have a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the privilege and freedom to gather together this morning to study your word, that we can hold up the mirror of your word to uh, objectively examine our own lives and the thinking in our own souls, that we may see how we need to change to be transformed in our thinking, that we may continue our spiritual advance. Father, we thank you for the truths that we see in this passage of scripture today and the fact that that as we advance in our spiritual life and we learn to love you and then to truly love others, as the Scripture describes, pray that we might be able to use this to uh, solve the various personal problems that we face and encounter in our own lives. Father, we pray that as we study today, you'd help us to understand these things and that we might be responsive to the challenge of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are two problem-solving devices or stress busters that I think are, as I talk to people and as I now and then get involved in uh, counseling situations or just helping people work through personal problems, that uh, I, I think we talk about a lot, but I don't think too many people really understand how to implement them. And they're grace orientation in terms of a basic uh, spiritual life stress buster and uh, what it develops into as an advanced problem-solving device, which is the love uh, triplex. What I mean by the love triplex is personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind or unconditional love, and occupation with Christ. And I think the reason it is so difficult is because it runs completely counter to everything that is a natural response for our sin nature whenever we are in a uh, some kind of difficult situation, especially when it involves undeserved suffering or when that undeserved suffering seems to have its source in somebody else. And we see an example of that in the theme. This is just an underlying sub-theme in the whole book of Ruth because Naomi believes that the suffering she is going through is undeserved. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She is left destitute. And so she's blaming God for all of her problems. And there are two basic problems that we need to, or traps that we need to desperately avoid in the Christian life whenever we encounter any suffering. Remember, suffering comes in two categories. It's either deserved or it's undeserved. Deserved suffering we pretty much can handle because in some ways we know that, well, we made the bad decisions and we're just getting what we asked for. But there are times when we do everything in our power to make a good decision. We seek counsel, we take time, we follow all the accepted procedures, and one thing or another leads to uh, complete collapse of whatever our plans were, and we're left disappointed, destitute, heartbroken, whatever it might be. All of a sudden, what we thought would be blessing turns to emptiness, and too often what happens is we turn our, we become angry at that disappointment, and we turn that anger and direct it towards God towards other people, and it works itself out in terms of bitterness, hostility, revenge, motivation, just a host of mental attitude sins. And then when we come under the pressure in our soul 
from those mental attitude sins, and now life is miserable because you've made yourself miserable by responding with uh, anger, hostility, hurt, whatever, from, from a position of being hurt to that situation, now you make yourself miserable. And the misery that you encounter, this happens in marriage, this happens in marriages, this happens in employment situations, it happens in any circumstance in life where you are deeply involved in, with people you're committed to. And all of a sudden there is there's some sort of breakdown in the relationship or some sort of disappointment. You go to work for a company and next thing you know this company that promised the world delivered nothing and you've been there 10 or 15 years giving them a tremendous amount of loyalty and all of a sudden upper management's made some bad decisions and now the company is uh, having to go or, or just something happens like the events of September 11th and now the company has to uh, downsize drastically or they go into bankruptcy and they start laying people off and you've lost your job and, and uh, you have the disappointment that goes with that. Grace orientation and personal love for God are the foundations for handling those problems. If we don't haven't assimilated those two doctrines and those two doctrines as problem-solving devices and spiritual skills in our soul, then when we hit those uh, speed bumps on the road of life, then what happens is we go off the road and crash. And you, I just see that happen uh, over and over again in people's lives. And Naomi is a classic example of that. In chapter 1, we see when she comes back to Bethlehem, every, all her friends gather around her and say, this is great, Naomi's back, let's go see Naomi. And Naomi responds in a very bitter you can almost hear the sarcasm, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because God has caused my circumstances, my life to be bitter. And so she returns, and she's a bitter old woman. But God isn't through with her, and the circumstances aren't done. And so often, as soon as we hit negative circumstances in life, and we go through undeserved suffering, we think this is the end. But there's one thing we can count on in life. We're going to go through varying degrees of suffering in life, much of which is not going to be related to the bad decisions that we make. It's going to be based on the fact that we are uh, involved with fallen people living in a fallen world. We're married to a sinner, and that sinner may deeply and tragically disappoint us at times. So how do we handle that life situation without it destroying our own spiritual life or marriage or the relationship as a whole is to use impersonal love. And that's how we face the problems in life is we understand that everything is due to grace and it is God's grace that's going to get us through. And that's why the key concept in the book of Ruth is based on the Hebrew word chesed, which is translated, you know, I think inadequately many times in the book is simply kindness. In the Psalms it's used over and over again and it's translated as loyal love or steadfast love. And we've looked at this word time and again as we've gone through our study of Ruth. And this word, I think, can almost be summarized as a loyal love based on integrity. It's, it's such a, a pregnant word in the, in the Hebrew that it's almost impossible to use one word in English to understand it. It, 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 it wraps all these meanings up into one word. It emphasizes mercy, love, grace kindness, steadfastness, loyalty. It, one thing we can say about chesed for sure is it is not an emotional term. See, what happens as soon as you get hit, some level of undeserved suffering, especially if it involves people testing, is the first thing that happens is we start re reacting from emotion. And we have to stop that immediately, and the only thing that can do that is the Word of God. And often, especially in extreme cases, it, it, it just seems like somebody's given us a, a tough punch to the solar plexus and we're left winded and we immediately react. That's our, that's our knee-jerk, sin-nature response is, to re, is anger, is to protect ourselves. Some sort of uh, mental attitude sin is immediately engaged and which can quickly snowball and pick up other mental attitude sins. And then before we know it, we're, we're making decisions from a position of anger, 
position of hatred, position of bitterness, position of jealousy, position of revenge. And whenever we start making decisions based on that, and we lose sight of that, we think we're being objective, and, and often we manage to convince ourselves we're really making a good decision, when in fact, by failing to use uh, and understand impersonal love for all mankind, because we really haven't grappled with God's own uh, impersonal love for us and what grace is all about, then we start making bad decisions, and we may not see what the long-term consequences of, that, of those bad decisions are for, for maybe a decade or so. But we have to be careful. And so as we get into this book of Ruth, we see the principle that undeserved suffering is transformed by God into blessing. And we don't see it when it first hits. All of a sudden we walk around a corner expecting everything to be wonderful, and there's some, somebody or something there with a two-by-four that hits us right in the face. And our immediate reaction, our immediate response is to react to that kind of situation. And while we're sitting there in a pool of blood, we just can't ever imagine that things are going to somehow work out. And in five or ten years, if I stick with it and apply doctrine, this is going to reap rewards of incredible blessing. But I've seen that happen in my life. I've seen that happen in other people's lives. And when you go through the that difficult time, which is likened by the, by the psalmist in Psalm 23 to walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You just think that, well, nothing's ever going to recover. God is working behind the scenes to bring about recovery and blessing. But the test, and that's what it is, it is a test. It wouldn't be a test if you saw it coming. It wouldn't be a test. It, it's not so much of a test when it's deserved suffering. What makes it the test is you don't think you deserve it. You think somehow someone or God is treating you unfairly or wrongly, and you just want to get away from the situation entirely. Trouble is, when you get away from the situation entirely, you postpone the test, and mark my words, you're going to have to come back and go through the test all over again because that God has a remarkable way of designing these tests for us in such a way that they hit each of us directly in the area of our own sin nature where we have our own areas of weakness because God is teaching us to apply doctrine and trust Him specifically in those areas. And so the test that hits you like that two-by-four right between the eyes is going to be a test that is specifically designed to hit you at your weakest area. And if you don't deal with it at that particular time, when let's say you're 20 years old or 25 years old or 30 years old, then you're going to be having to go through that again and again. And each time you postpone dealing with that on the basis of doctrine, it's going to become more and more difficult to handle. So in this section of Ruth, we are seeing how grace orientation and the love complex work together to help Ruth and Naomi solve the problem that they face, and that is the problem that they have been left destitute, impoverished. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. They have no one to provide protection or security for the family, and they are, are left on the welfare rolls of Israel so that Ruth has to go out into the fields to work like a field hand, gleaning what's left over from uh, the field hands once they have harvested the wheat and the barley. Now, we saw that, that in chapter 2, there's a glimmer of hope. In chapter 1, at the end, there's no hope. Naomi knows of no one who is a goel, which is the term for a kinsman redeemer under the concept of a, of a leveret marriage that is in part of the Mosaic law. There was no one there to come to their rescue. They were left impoverished. But Ruth, because she has hesed, she, see, she understands grace, and because she understands grace and these, the doctrines in her soul, she has true loyalty towards Naomi. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had a few opportunities here and there to be around people who are profoundly angry about their circumstances in life and bitter. And it's not pleasant. You really don't want to be with those people. And here Ruth has declared her loyalty to this angry, bitter, resentful old woman and she sticks with her, and she makes it her responsibility to take care of the family. 
And we saw that at the beginning of the second chapter. She gets up in the morning. She's going to go out trying to find a field outside of Bethlehem where there's at least one person who understands and is applying the Mosaic law and leaving the corners of the field unharvested so there's something left over for the widows and the poor people of town so that they can go out and eke out some grain so that they can survive. And she relies upon the grace of God. See, she applies the principle of grace that God's provided a system. Therefore, God is going to provide the solution. She doesn't know who it's going to be or how it's going to function. But she gets up in the morning and she goes out trusting God because she's relying on his grace. She gets out there and she goes from field to field. And there are many who are not applying doctrine. Remember, this is the period of the judges. They're not applying doctrine. They don't care. They're operating on a self-centered basis. They don't care about the poor. They don't care about the widows. They're going to, they're going to squeeze out every dime they can get from their, the production in their fields. And then she comes to one field, and the overseer lets her come and glean. And it turns out, by chance, the writer said, because he's emphasizing for us, he wants us to know there's no such thing as chance. God must be working here. And she, she comes into this field, and it turns out it's owned by Boaz. And then she will discover that at the end of that chapter, when she comes back and tells Naomi about the wonderful kindness and generosity and grace, see, Boaz is handling the situation on the basis of grace and faithful, loyal love. He's an example of that. So when he discovers who, who Ruth is, he's, he gives her the opportunity to glean in the fields, and he's going to take care of her. Now, he's not going to violate the law by just giving her something. He is going to provide the opportunity for her to continue to work, but he tells all his field hands that what he wants them to do is, after they harvest, drop a lot of grain on the ground so that she can pick it up. He's going to make it easier for her, but she's still going to have to be engaged in uh, divine institution number one, personal responsibility, and she's got to work for it. See, that's what the problem with our welfare system is we give it to people, and that destroys their their, their self-respect, that, that destroys their understanding of personal responsibility, and it undercuts everything that you want to develop in people it is to get them out of those circumstances, out of poverty, and where they're, they're, they're uh, self-reliant and they can get a job. And when you give it to people, it destroys their, their ability to do that. And so he recognizes that, and she still works for it. Now, she, come home, she came home after that first day, and she had about 30 or 40 pounds of, uh, of grain with her. Naomi's just amazed. Where did you get all this? And so Ruth relayed the story to her. Naomi begins to see hope now. See, she's gone from bitterness. She hears this story. She realizes that the benefactor is Boaz, and he is a distant kinsman. She had completely forgotten about him. He's not a brother, so he doesn't fit precisely the, the requirement for leveret marriage. But he's a distant kinsman. He can still function as a goel, and that's where we first ran into that term, and we did a study the last two weeks on the doctrine of the goel, the kinsman redeemer, that his function within society was to come in as a family member and to take care of, through marriage, marrying the widow of a deceased brother, to take that widow as his wife, raise up children to the name of the deceased brother in order to preserve the family and in order to provide uh, protection and security for the widow. This was one of God's ways of taking care of uh, the widows, orphans, and the impoverished in Israel. So Naomi has a glimpse of hope that there's someone there who can do something, that maybe God is going to bless us after all, and maybe there is hope. But time goes by, and we're left at the end of chapter 2, hanging in suspense. We don't know what will happen to Naomi and Ruth. Uh, some time seems to go by, and Boaz really doesn't seem to do anything. And when we come to chapter 3, we realize that approximately three months has gone by for the time of the harvest, and now it's the time of winnowing. It's gone from early April to now probably sometime in, in early June or, or mid-June. And Boaz has made no move. He's taken no steps towards Ruth. He hasn't indicated any interest in her. He has basically left her alone. Now, what we will see in our study is that this is probably due to the fact that she's still dressed in her widow's 
clothing. She's still in mourning, and so he's respecting her privacy. He's giving her the time to go through her mourning, and so he is not going to intrude on her. Once again, this is a function of grace orientation. He understands grace, he understands impersonal love, and he is not going to do or say anything uh, until she gets to the point where she is going to go forward in life. Now, as we come to chapter 3, it is the beginning of the barley uh, winnowing time. Uh, This would take place after both the barley and wheat had all been cut and gathered to the threshing floor. Now, in light of uh, Naomi's comments in chapter 3 about Boaz being the near kinsman, the Goel, we would expect that something would have happened by now. Three months has gone by. Every day, Ruth is going out to Boaz's field, and she's gleaning behind the harvesters. But nothing has happened. There's no indication that anything's happened. Everything is at the same uh, stage as it was uh, after the first day. And unfortunately, she is disappointed at this time, and as is often true in life, we are frequently met with disappointments. And despite careful planning, despite prayer, you can imagine that every day in their impoverished circumstances, Naomi was beseeching God to to bless them and, and move Boaz to make some sort of move. Nothing happened. And um, nothing is going quite the way that, that it should or that we expect it to. But rather than giving up in defeat, what we need to do is search the Scriptures. We need to make sure we understand what the parameters of God's plan is for our life. And we need to then develop solutions and plans that function within those parameters so that we can move forward in life. And that's exactly what we're going to see. And we're going to get, see a tremendous example of how to face problems and develop a plan in this episode. So we come to verse 1, and we read, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now, we have to take a few moments to just understand what's going on in this statement. This is three months later. The then just skips over these three months, and Naomi is now going to take things in her hand. She's been thinking about this whole situation. She's been thinking about, obviously, she's been thinking about the law of Moses. She's been thinking about what the parameters are within the the law as to what they can do and what they can't do, and she has come up with a plan to try to move things along. There's nothing wrong with that. She's staying within the law. It's a fantastic example of uh, planning and seeking God's will and executing the plan. She says, my daughter, which is a term of endearment for uh, Ruth, and she says, shall I not seek security for you? Now, notice the difference. In chapter 2, it is Ruth dealing with this embittered old woman who is going to go out and provide for the security of the family by, by gleaning in the fields. But now it is Naomi. Naomi has gotten right with the Lord again because Naomi has understood that God and His grace is going to deal with them, and she's not bitter anymore. So apparently between the beginning of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 2, When she hears about God's provision of this kinsman redeemer, uh, Naomi goes through confession and applies the problem-solving device number one, and she's going to confess her sins and get oriented to doctrine again. And that is why she's able to come up with a plan. She has restored some objectivity to her thinking. And she says, Shall I not seek security for you? Now, that's a fairly good translation. If you use an NIV... It says, shall I not find a home for you? And that's more of an interpretive translation. That's one of the reasons I don't care for the New International Version uh, very much. The point here is expressed by the Hebrew word manoach. Manoach means a place of rest. From the word noach, meaning rest, it's the same root from which Noah got his name. Manoach means a place of rest, and it means a place of financial and domestic security. She knows that Ruth is still a young woman, and she needs a a place of financial and domestic security. And in Hebrew society, the only place where a woman really had that was in a domestic situation with a husband who was the source of protection. Now, the other thing that we should note about this is we see this word manoach. It's used earlier in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Just hold your place and turn back a couple of pages. 
In 1, 8, and 9, there's a sort of a prayer uttered by Naomi, sort of a backdoor prayer. She says to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly. That's may the Lord have hesed towards you if you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest. Manoach. Find rest each in the house of her husband. And so the word Manoah here, as we come to chapter 3, verse 1, arrests our attention to think that, well, maybe God is now going to answer the prayer and the prayer for blessing that Naomi uttered back in 1.9. The other thing that we see here is it picks up the imagery that is used in chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12 Boaz is also expressing uh, a phrase of blessing, pronouncing a benediction upon Ruth, and says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Now, it doesn't use the word Manoach there, but the concept of security and protection is clearly there. God spreads his wings to protect us, and in the same way a husband... And we're going to see this is the idiom that is used. A husband spreads his wings to protect the wife and the family. Men, that is your primary role or one of your primary roles as a husband to function in the realm of leadership to provide protection and security for the family. And so Naomi is indicating all of this, and we've seen the foreshadowing of it through these two other instances in one nine and in 2.12. And so now when we run across this statement, shall I not seek security for you, we, the writer wants us to, to begin to anticipate just how God is now going to solve their problems. See, they have, they're faced with one of life's problems. They're financially destitute. They're going hungry. They're, they're on the welfare rolls. They have no sec- financial security, no, fi- no future f- for e- either one of them. And so they just are barely making it, barely getting by. Now, they have some decisions to make. And and when Naomi begins to talk to Ruth in the next section, starting in verse 2 down through through about verse uh, 15, or really 2 through 6 to begin with, she's going to start rehearsing the situation. But what we find here is an example of an approach to problem-solving and decision-making in the will of God. And it's what I've called and outlined before when I've covered the doctrine of the will of God, is that often the Word of God does not give us precise answers to different situations. You hit a problem, you say, well, what's God's will for me? Well, first of all, my first reaction is that most people don't really want to know God's will. Most of the time when people say, what's God's will for me in this situation, is you know good and well what God's will for you is. You've seen it expelled out. You just want somebody to come along and try to absolve you of that responsibility. But there are times when we get in circumstances and we don't know exactly which way to go and how to solve the problem, and God's word doesn't address it specifically. And that's part of the test is for us to take the parameters that God has given us in His Word as boundaries and then create something beautiful, create something skillful in the midst of those boundaries as a result of applying doctrine. The first example of this goes back to the garden when God gave Adam the responsibility to name the animals. God didn't name the animals. Adam didn't sit there and say, Lord, what do you want, to call, what, what do you want me to call this animal that's got this long neck? God was silent. God said, hey, I gave you an opportunity to exercise creativity as being, par- as being in the image of God. That's, that's part of our function is we are to create, but create within the boundaries of God's Word. So God didn't answer Adam. Adam said, what do I call this, this other creature here that's got, a, got, got this funny nose? God didn't say anything. That's, and suddenly it finally dawned on Adam that Adam was to generate from within his own soul the creati- and using a, cre- a, a creative process, he was to name the animals on his own. It's not a matter of one, thing's, one name was right and another name was wrong. It was the opportunity to look and to think and interact with creation and then to make a decision. See, that's another problem that a lot of people have is they just don't want to make a decision. 
They're afraid of the consequences. They don't want to take a chance. They think they're afraid that if they make certain decisions and step out in faith, it's a gamble, and they're scared to death of what the consequences might be. And one of the things we're going to see in this chapter is that one example or one characteristic of functioning in chesed is that it's willing to take a gamble on the basis of the integrity of God by doing what God says to do, even though it's a risk and even though it makes us vulnerable to danger. And that's exactly what will happen with Ruth in this circumstance. So how did they approach it? How did Naomi approach this? Well, first of all, she knew that there, was a, there were three different laws in the Mosaic Law that applied to this situation that provide the parameters, but they, don't get, they, they do not give a specific answer to their situation. And so the first line here, we're going to build a triangle. And everything within the triangle, many different decisions could have been made, and that's the parameter of God's Word. But we're going to build the triangle as the boundaries for the decision. And the first principle is in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, and this is the gleaning law. And we've covered most of this already, but now we're going to put it together in a different way to give you an example of how to problem solve. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 says, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. That's the foreigner. That would apply to, the needy would apply to Naomi, and the stranger would apply to Ruth. I am the Lord your God. So this is the uh, divine viewpoint welfare system that operated in Israel. It was based on responsibility that even though you're poor, even though you're needy, you still have to get out and do something to earn your uh, support and to, to uh, get what you need in order to survive. So that's operating on one hand. That provides the, the basis for what Ruth has been doing, going out into the fields and gleaning in order to find sustenance for the survival of her and her mother-in-law. Now, the second line, the second parameter is established in the law of levered marriage that's given in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. The law of levered marriage that's given in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. See if I can get a better image up on the overhead. Okay. The law of leveret marriage. And here we read Deuteronomy 25.5. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now notice that. Doesn't say anything about the fact that, that they need to have an attraction for one another, that it's a, a matter of romantic love. It just says there's a responsibility here to protect the family that now falls on other family members. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, Notice this is a public court at, which was held at the gate of the city. All the city fathers are there. The heads of the families, the heads of the clans are there. And this is a public statement. My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. So he gets to come to court and give his side of the story. And he's summoned, and if he... And um, if he persists, that is, in his refusal to take on the obligation, and says, I do not desire to take her, 
you know, I'm in love with somebody else or I'm just I got my own career going and I don't want to be bothered with the responsibilities of, of family right now. Uh, I'm just doing my own thing. I'm not going to take on this responsibility. Then in verse 9, then his, we read, Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel his name shall be called, that's the name of the unwilling brother, the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now this seems like a fairly bizarre type of situation to us in our culture because in Western culture, since the late Middle Ages, we have adopted the concept that marriage should be based on something called romantic love. But it may surprise you, the Bible does not know anything about building a marriage on romantic love. That is a concept completely foreign to the Bible. In fact, in biblical times, marriages were arranged. Romantic love only developed subsequent to the marriage. As the couple began to know each other, and grew together over time. They didn't have the option of leaving each other. They didn't have the option of going away. And often the argument is made that the reason they were more successful in their marriages was because parents really knew their kids, and they could do a better job of picking out a uh, spouse than the kids could. And that would be still true today if parents would spend any time with their kids. But most parents don't, so they don't know how to do that anymore. Um, The emphasis in this is on family loyalty and responsibility. This is the divine viewpoint provision to maintain property and freedom for the family when they've gone through harsh circumstances. God set up this system, and it's not based on love. It's based on loyalty and responsibility. See, it's not based on some sort of emotional concept of romance. It's based on a system of integrity that understands what family responsibility and family loyalty is. And so um, today, too often, we don't understand these things, and as soon as somebody disappoints us or fails us in some way, or we go through some difficulty in life, either because that person that we're married to makes bad decisions or has made some sort of bad decision in the past, and so we look at this as undeserved suffering, our emotions go in one direction. And then it's hard for us to love that person because they've done something or because something happened. But, but when you get married, you never know what's going to happen around the corner. Now, there may be situations in life where uh, a couple gets married and then six, or six months later or a year later, uh, something happens. And maybe it's the direct fault of one member of the, of the marriage, one party of the marriage. Or maybe it's just the negative circumstances of life. Some debilitating disease may take place, or something may happen in the economy as a whole that destroys that person's uh, wage-earning abilities. Maybe, and I've seen circumstances like this, where a couple gets married in their 20s, and it looks like the man has a fantastic career and opportunity. He's got great education, but then something happens. Uh, It can be his fault. It may not be his fault. It may be just the circumstances of life. But all of a sudden, he's been trained for some job or some career, and then we've seen this happen with the advance of technology. All of a sudden, there's no no job anymore, and he's got to go back and do something else, and he may have a Ph.D. in uh, in physics and not be able to get a job in that field, and so he ends up uh, working uh, at the local 7-Eleven or convenience store. And so whatever was anticipated before the union is not going to ever be fulfilled. And we would say, well, you know, to heck with that person, throw that marriage away and go get another shot. But that's not how the Bible looks at it. The Bible looks at these decisions that we are to handle these situations on principle, on doctrinal principle, on the basis of integrity. And once you do that, once you operate on principle, and operate on integrity and do the right thing, then the emotions are going to swing back in line with the mentality. And that's the biblical approach. And this is what happens here. There's no situation here of romantic love. And God can't force love. He can't force responsibility. 
So he sets forth this issue and making sure that the real issue of loyalty and responsibility are clear. And so if the man is not willing to accept a challenge and take on the responsibility, then he is going to be publicly humiliated and shamed because he refuses to accept family responsibility. So the issue for us is who are we going to follow? Cultural concepts of romantic love and marriage and trying to get whatever we thought we should have gotten and live up to our dreams? Or are we going to follow divine viewpoint concepts of loyalty to principle and using the principles of grace orientation and unconditional love to handle the situation so that we can see that suffering be transformed ultimately into blessing? And that's not going to take a day or two. That may take decades before it's transformed into blessing. But this was the background and this was the second principle that Naomi's functioning within, and that's the principle of levered marriage. But the problem is there's no brother to Malin. Malin was the husband of Ruth, and there's no brother. Uh, Boaz is a distant cousin. He's third, fourth, fifth cousin, uh, once or twice removed. He's, he's way out there, and they don't know it yet, but there's somebody else who's even closer, but still not a brother. So the Leverett marriage law only applied to a brother, so it simply provides uh, one boundary. It doesn't give them a precise solution. And then the third area of a solution is found in Leviticus 25, verses 10 through 13. The third boundary of this triangle is the law of the redemption of property. The Bible clearly recognizes the importance of ownership of personal property and that that's the basis for freedom. And as long as personal ownership of property is preserved, there will be freedom in the nation. That's why God established these laws. And we read in Leviticus 25.10, You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. What this meant was that if your family got in, into difficult financial trouble and you had to get bailed out, then you could sell off a part of that land that God had given to each family and each clan once they came into the land. You could sell it off. Maybe you had to sell it all off in order to get enough money in order to survive, but it wasn't going to leave your future bankrupt and future generations bankrupt. Because when the Jubilee year came along, all the land would, would revert back to its original ownership. Now, as far as we know, Israel never applied this. You know, they were too uh, self-centered. And like most of us, they wanted to hold on to whatever they had. So this, this law was never applied in the history of Israel, which was just another uh, indictment against them in terms of their disobedience to the law. But interestingly enough, in previous generations in our country, people were aware of these laws and the importance of property. That's why in the uh, Constitution originally, when it says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's the, that, the original clause was life, liberty, and the pursuit of property because they recognized that property and private ownership of property was the key to freedom. And if you don't have private ownership of property, or if it's prevented and made difficult by excessive taxation, then you're limiting the freedom of the people. That's why socialism is such a heinous evil, is because it destroys freedom by destroying private ownership, private ownership of property. Also, it's interesting to note, just a little historical note, that part of this verse is inscribed on the Liberty Bell, which shows that our founding fathers understood the relationship of property to freedom. Now, Naomi is motivated to solve the problem. And she's got these three absolutes that she's working with, these three laws, but none of them tells her exactly what the solution to her problem is. But they provide the parameter, and within that parameter, she is going to come up with a somewhat uh, unique solution to the problem. And she's been giving this some thought, and so she finally comes up with this solution, and we see her plan beginning in Ruth 3, verse 2. She rehearses the fact. She says, Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. So she's beginning to lay out this plan. And uh, Boaz is going to be up spending the night at the threshing floor. Now this starts to introduce a little tension. If you understand the, 
the culture, immediately you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what in the world is she going to have Ruth do? Because in that culture, what happened at harvest time is the field workers would stay out there to winnow at night. See, the threshing floor, they didn't have a built barn. It wasn't a constructed area. They would seek an area up on an exposed hilltop where there was a lot of rock and a flat, rocky spot where they could throw the grain up to separate it, and they would thresh it out up there and winnow the the grain up on the threshing floor, and they could sweep it off, and it would be up on a hilltop so that when they did this, they got some wind that would blow the chaff away. And the owners and the workers would usually stay up there and spend the night there away from home um, in order to protect their investment so that animals wouldn't come in and, and uh, eat the grain and so uh, robbers wouldn't come and steal it. So they would stay up there away from their families. And it was typical. Remember, we're dealing with the period of the judges where prostitutes would go out there to offer their services to the field workers. So now Naomi is presenting this plan to Ruth that you're going to go out at night and you're going to go out to see Boaz at the threshing floor. So this whole situation is fraught with some sexual tension here and some moral tension. What is going to happen? This is, this is a situation where, where Ruth is going to be in an extremely vulnerable position. Now, the, this whole situation that's going to take place here sounds real strange to us, but it was very typical of their culture and what was going on. And what we'll see here is that Ruth is going to be asked to become very vulnerable and to take a chance, but because she understands integrity and she's comfortable with her own integrity and she's come to understand Boaz, she's willing to take that risk. So Naomi suggests in verse 3, Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, this guy's not having a Big Mac with a Diet Coke. At the end of the day, when they're out there working on the threshing floor all day, they're going to kick back, and they're going to eat some of the bread they've been baking from the grain, and they're going to drink some barley beer. And see, the last time we ran into this phrase, eating and drinking, we saw it over in Judges chapter 20. And after they got through eating and drinking, all hell broke loose. And so there's a hint here by the use of this terminology that, wait a minute, Boaz might be a little vulnerable if he's had a little too much beer that night. And uh, maybe he will uh, take advantage of Ruth. So the author is building some tension for us. It's a tremendous drama going on here. And the use of the terminology also builds this, this sexual tension. For example, you have the word rahats for wash, which means to wash and to take a bath. And in some contexts, this, is, uh, this was an activity that preceded a sexual encounter, as you see in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 8 through 12. And then she is told to anoint herself. And this would take some olive oil that has perfume in it in order to mask the body odors. You know, it's June, it's hot, it's in Israel, and they don't have a right guard or ban. So they would anoint themselves with these perfumed oils in order to mask the body odors. And then she is told to put on her best clothes. And this is the Hebrew word simlah. Simlon, it refers to a garment, a cloak, or a coat. Now, this was an outer garment that was also used by the poor as a blanket at night. So she is to wash herself, anoint herself, and it sounds like she's preparing for a real hot time tonight, and put on your best clothes. That's not really best clothes. It's put on this outer garment of uh, this outer coat and go down to the threshing floor, and then read the rest of the text. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Wait till he uh, retires for the evening and curls up on his mat to go to sleep. So immediately we're, we're caught with this sexual tension. What is actually going on here? What's, what's going to happen? Now, some people have made too much about the sexual overtones of this passage. And the if you look at another passage, we'll put the verse up here on the overhead. Second, well, maybe I didn't get it. Second Samuel 12:20. So David arose from the ground, washed, 
anointed himself and changed his clothes. Same verbiage. He washed, he anointed himself, and changed his clothes. What's the context of 2 Samuel 12.20? This is right. He's, he's had the affair with Bathsheba. She got pregnant. Uh, he killed her husband. He uh, tried to cover it all up. God sent Nathan the prophet to challenge him. And part of the penalty and the divine discipline on David for his adultery, murder, and conspiracy was that the baby that had been conceived would die. So the baby's born, the baby gets sick, and David is in mourning. He is, he is crying out to God and praying. He's fasting. He's uh, put on sackcloth and ashes. And uh, to no avail, God does not answer his prayer to keep the child alive. So the child dies. Well, David is now going to end his mourning. So he arose from the ground. He knows that God's will has been accomplished with the death of the infant. He washed, he anointed himself, and changed his clothes and came into the house of the Lord to worship. Now, that's exactly what, what we see with Ruth. When we look at the verbiage in that verse, Ruth 3.3, 3, what Naomi is really telling Ruth to do is to get rid of your widow's robes, your widow's rags, get rid of all the trappings of bereavement, and get on with your life. You need a husband. You need a man who's going to take care of you and provide protection. And now's the time to let him know that you're ready to get on with your life. So dress like it. It is not an opportunity to go out and seduce him on the threshing floor. Some people have read that into the text. Now we come to verse 4. Verse 4 we read, And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet. Now, the word for feet isn't simply uh, his, his, his feet, as we would say it in English, but would involve the lower leg as well. And lie down. Now, this, again, there, there's terminology here. For example, we have the word for lie, lie down and uncover his feet. And this terminology also has a, a sexual overtones with it. We talk about a man lying down. Uh, with a woman, and the term uncovering his feet uh, sometimes was used as a euphemism for uncovering the genitals. So uh, some people have made too much of that, but that is not what is going on here. This is not an immoral situation, and she is going to just simply get his attention. She's going to uncover his feet, so the cool night air is going to wake him up, and he is going to discover that this young woman is now lying at his feet. And in verse 5, Ruth says, okay, I'll do it. Notice she's got some authority orientation and humility, and she recognizes that this is going to be a situation fraught with some danger. Just imagine the tension, the anxiety, and the hope that was going through her as she dresses and prepares for this encounter, and she's going to go up to the threshing floor, and she has no idea how Boaz is going to respond, and she's sitting there outside of the firelight, waiting for him to finish drinking and eating, and, and he goes to bed. Now, there's no sense, that, no indication in the Scripture that he got drunk or anything like that. He's just relaxing at the end of a hard day. And so she waits, and we see the gamble played out in verses 6 through 13. Verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, and there that is part of the function of... Uh, alcoholic beverages. Remember in the Psalms it says God gave us wine for the joy of our heart. And that doesn't encourage drunkenness or even getting a little high. It's just that a recognition that being a teetotaler is not something that makes you spiritual. Uh, Boaz is eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. He's relaxed for the evening. He goes to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, he's tired. He's been out working in the fields all day. When his head hit the pillow, he was asleep. He's gone. I mean, he wasn't just tossing and turning, sitting up there wondering, well, what am I going to do tomorrow? He's just gone right to sleep. She comes over, raises up the, the coat, and she uh, lies down at his feet. Well, it happened at the middle of the night, so some time has gone by before he wakes up. Middle of the night, the man is startled. He probably rolled over or moved his leg and kicked some lump down there. And uh, wait a minute, what's going on? Or, or his lower legs got a little cold in the night air, and he starts to pull the covers up, and he hits a body down there. Well, that's not supposed to be there. Finally, he comes to, and he leans over, bends forward, and beholds there's a woman lying at his feet. 
Now, this is the crucial moment because, because it was typical of prostitutes to come up and offer their services to the men. So, so Boaz could have mistaken her intentions at this point, but he doesn't even give a hint to that because Boaz is a man of integrity in his soul. He does not respond that way. Now, this is a moment of tremendous tension for her because she's down there at his feet wondering what in the world is he going to do. And he demonstrates the doctrine in his soul, and he asks her, Who are you? Identify yourself. And she answers, I am Ruth, your maid. Now, in her answer, in her answer, she uses a different word for maid. She doesn't use the word she had used in chapter 2, describing herself as a sifa, which was the lowest order of domestic servant, and there would be no possibility of a sifa slave or sifa maid ever marrying the boss. But now she uses the word ama, and there are many examples in uh, we found in archaeology and extra biblical literature where the uh, this would be a higher order of a domestic servant where the maid married the master. And so Ruth says that, I am Ruth, your maid. She doesn't identify her as Ruth the Moabitess or Ruth the daughter of Naomi. She says, I am Ruth, your maid. She's very bold in what she says here. And then she says, so spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Now, if you were studying this in some sort of English literature class at some university, the idiot professor would immediately say, well, this means they were going to have sex. Well, that's because they don't understand anything about Hebrew language or idiom at all. And what happens here is she's saying, spread your covering. Literally, it's spread your wings. Now, we have just seen that same idiom before, haven't we? God is the one who spreads his wings over us. And this was a Hebrew idiom for protection. And so when she says, spread your wings over your maid, not spread your covering, but spread your wings over your maid, she is proposing marriage to him. How forward can you get? She is telling him that she wants to get married. She, she is proposing to him, and then it's, the last clause is introduced by a causal key in the Hebrew. And she says, because, not for, it's better translated, because you are a close relative. You have a responsibility here. She's going to call him to this, this level of responsibility, inform him of the fact that, that he is a, a a, can function as a goel, and so she is proposing marriage to him. And then we see his response, the response of a man of integrity. He says, he pronounces a blessing on her in verse 10. He says, May you be blessed of Yahweh, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness, your hesed. You are showing faithful, loyal love. Now, see, she's not concerned about her own security here. She, when she says, I want you to be a goel because you're a kinsman, She's not thinking about herself or her own, own security because the function of the goel was what? To provide protection to the family of the dead husband and to raise up progeny to his name so that the inheritance of the family can continue. She's not thinking about herself here. She's thinking in terms of a future for the family line of Elimelech and Naomi. She is being unselfish. At this point, she's not focused on, you know, take care of me. I don't want to grow old and be alone all my life. She is focused on serving other people. That's chesed. That's impersonal love. It's humility. It's grace orientation. And he recognizes the integrity in her soul. She said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last chesed to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. See, you're not going to go after the young guys. You're not going to go after somebody for their money. You are focused on the ultimate values in life, which have to do with the preservation of family and loyalty and the integrity and the values that are expressed in the Mosaic Code. And he recognizes his responsibility here. He says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And now it is true, I am a close relative. However, now we have a complication. There is a relative closer than I. Now, how are we going to get around this problem? Well, we see his enthusiasm for solving the problem. He says, remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. In other words, we've got to go to him 
and find out what his intentions are and what he's going to do. And that's going to recall the text we saw earlier in Leviticus where they're going to have to bring this other guy before the law court at the city gates and find out what his intentions are. So we're going to have a removal of the sandal ceremony in chapter 4. So he's going to set up a plan and he's going to solve it. And notice his enthusiasm. They're going to do it when morning comes. If he will redeem you, good. But if he does not wish to redeem you, notice every time you see the word here, redeem here, it's goel, or the verb gaal. If he will not redeem you, that is, and here the idea is more protection than purchase. If he won't pay the purchase price to protect you, if he will pay the purchase price to protect you, good. Let him do so. But if he does not wish to pay the purchase price to protect you, then I will pay the purchase price to protect you. All of that's wrapped up in the concept of Gaal. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So go back to sleep. Now there's nothing going on here in an immoral way. She lies down, she goes to sleep, but then he, out of his integrity, we're going to see that he is still concerned about protecting her reputation. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. That's before the sun comes up. I know some of you don't know when that is, but when you get up at 4.30 in the morning, you can't recognize other people out there if it's dark. So she lay at his feet until morning, rose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Now he's talking to others who were there. And he says, keep this quiet. We don't want to destroy her reputation. And then in verse 15, he says to her, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So see, he's going the extra mile in his generosity, his kindness. He's going to give her more, more provisions. Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. This is about six handfuls of barley. And then she went into the city. Notice, he, he is going beyond simple obligation here. That's what impersonal love does. Remember, Jesus tells the story about the Samaritan who has been robbed and beaten up, and the stranger comes along and gives him, takes this Samaritan, this enemy, to his house and feeds him and gives him clothes, goes the extra mile, is generous. That's what, why grace orientation must precede impersonal love, because it is, impersonal love is based on an understanding of grace, which means that you understand true humility. So he takes care of her. He provides for her. And then we have a mistranslation in the uh, New American Standard. It says, then she went into the city, and it should be translated he. The difference is in Hebrew you have a second masculine singular ending, and a se- or a third masculine singular ending, and a third feminine singular ending. And in some manuscripts it reads with a feminine singular ending, but... Um, the better reading is in the, in the manuscripts that have a masculine ending. because It's more difficult, and the more difficult reading is usually the correct one that somebody tried to say, well, well why is Boaz going anywhere? She's the one who's leaving, so this, this really should read she. But no, that was false reasoning. It reads then, he went into the city, and that indicates his enthusiasm to solve the problem. He's not going to wait. He sends her on, and he immediately goes into the city to start handling the problem right away. He makes a plan. He shows initiative, and he's not going to procrastinate. Well, Ruth goes on home. In verse 16 and 17, we see her, her trip home. In the last three verses, trip home to see Naomi. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her, all that the men had done for her. Ruth tells the episodes of the night, all that the man had done for her. And she said, and she shows Naomi, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So he gives that to her as a sign that he is going to fulfill his obligation. Verse 18, then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know. Now, this is the wise advice from Naomi, to be patient. See, when we get in life's difficult situations, too often we want an answer right now, and we don't want to be patient, and sometimes solutions take time. And so she counsels Ruth to wait, relax, wait on the Lord until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Now, to wrap up, there's 
four points of application here. Chesed, that is loyal love and integrity, puts the emphasis away from personal hurts and self-absorbed reaction and puts the emphasis on objectivity, doctrinal principles, and absolutes. Chesed shifts the emphasis from personal hurts and self-absorption and self-absorbed reaction, and it puts the emphasis on objectivity, doctrinal principles, and absolutes. Point number two, chesed removes emotion and emotional sins from the picture. As soon as you're operating on emotion, you're going to make bad decisions. Point number three, chesed focuses on God and His grace as the, provi- as the ultimate provision and the example of the solution. Chesed focuses on God and His grace as the provision and the example of the solution ultimately in how He sent Jesus Christ to die while we were still sinners. He didn't say, oh, you're such wonderful people, I'm going to send my son. You're going to respond so well. No, we were at enmity with God, we were obnoxious to God, and He dealt with us in the greatest kindness conceivable. And point four, chesed means that integrity is the standard for conducting the life in the midst of trials. That integrity is the standard for conducting life in the midst of trials. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged from your word regarding using chesed, using impersonal love as a problem-solving device. This is exemplified foremost on the cross where you sent Jesus Christ from your impersonal love to solve our greatest problem, which was sin. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, may they take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for you. That was God's impersonal love that solved the greatest problem you will ever face in life, which is your eternal destiny. Once you put your faith in Christ alone, you have eternal life, and that can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that we, the rest of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ would be challenged by this example that we have seen of Naomi and Ruth's problem-solving by using chesed in grace, orientation, and in personal love for God. And personal love for God and in personal love for all mankind. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.